Welcome, friends. Hello, Housers, to another episode of On the Way Home. I am your host, Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door, a very cool organization in the north of the GTA. Uh, we work in primarily York region, Peel region, and a little bit in Durham region right now. Uh, Blue Door as an organization is focused on preventing and ending homelessness. We do that through emergency housing, transitional housing, long-term housing, housing for 2S LGBTQ plus youth. We also have a construction social enterprise and all sorts of wraparound services for people across a region of 1.1 million that uh, desperately needs the support uh, going towards our most vulnerable. We do this in partnership with the amazing folks of the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness. Uh, Tim Richter and his team are doing great, great stuff. They've got their conference set for Halifax in the fall of 2023. You should register for it. Registration is open. It is the best conference of its kind. Amazing speakers, amazing presentations from your peers, from people all over the world. Great keynote speakers. You know, if you haven't been before, sign up, check it out. Halifax, of course, beautiful place to go in the fall. I'll be there. I hope you'll join me. Uh, go to cah.ca to register and check out all the other things they're doing too. Things like becoming a built for zero community. And trust me, your community wants to be a built for zero community. They do all sorts of trainings. Uh, and if you want to find out more, go to cah.ca. If you want to find out more about what we're doing at Blue Door, perhaps you're saying, hey, I'd love to develop a construct, which is our social enterprise or construction social enterprise. Go to bluedoor.ca. Uh, and check us out. We'd be happy to have that conversation. I'm so glad you joined me today. I think quite often right now when we talk about homelessness, housing is the main focus, and it should be. We need deeply, deeply affordable housing, and we need lots of it. But part of the challenge, too, revolves around income. For many of the people we serve at Blue Door and across the country, the 235-plus thousand Canadians experiencing homelessness, uh, if they actually had an adequate income and some supports and some wraparound supports, they could afford the housing that's out there. And so we have to have that discussion. When we talk about food banks, you've heard our guest, Neil Hetherington from Daily Bread, often say it's not about adding more food banks. That's not the solution. We need greater incomes. We need affordable housing so people can afford their food. Uh, in Ontario right now, if you receive social assistance, it's $720 a month. And the average one-bedroom apartment is about $2,000 a month. So there's a huge gap. So we need to talk about income. Government needs to address income. Now, here's the challenge. We've heard a lot about a basic income. And it's very cool. And I think we need to have that discussion. So I was really happy today to uh, welcome a guest. We have uh, David Green, who's a professor uh, in at uh, UBC. He's a professor of the Van at the Vancouver School of Economics. And uh, just a really cool guy. He was uh, pulled into a panel a few years back uh, with in Vancouver when the NDP, uh, sorry, the British Columbian government, the NDP government had a minority government. They worked together and the Greens said, hey, if we're going to work together, we need to look at the basic income. So they pulled together this panel of experts to take a look at like what the heck does that actually mean? And they did all sorts of research from across Canada, around the world. Uh, they put together this 500 page report. Uh, and it was pretty, pretty cool stuff. Like, so they actually looked at basic income, what it meant, is it the right tool moving forward? Um, and then from there, they actually said, you know, this is great. We don't want this to sit on a shelf. What can we do with this? Uh, and they approached a group in Montreal, a publisher, and were able to publish this book with the hopes of kind of moving that discussion forward. And so we have a great discussion around why maybe just, you know, one kind of basic income for all 
might not be the answer. And that there's a lot of different pieces to that, different supports that have to be added for people to be successful moving forward. We talk about how people have responded uh, to the book and the report. He talks about within minutes of that 500 page report landing, before anyone can really read it, uh, he was, as someone told him he was brain dead in a message. So uh, some people really embraced it, others have not. Uh, but it really, there's some great suggestions in this book to move that discussion forward. And we talk about how we need to be more solutions focused uh, when going to government to uh, move things forward and dig us out of this crisis. And we talk about that and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation, with this important conversation as much as I did. Here we go. David, so glad to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk. We ask the same question to all our guests because it's very personal and different for every guest. And that question is simply, what does home mean to you? What does home? I think home means uh, family, honestly. Home means um, wherever my wife and my children are, but it's probably a broader definition that includes my brothers. And so I have a pretty broad notion of home, I'd say. I love that. I love that family means so much. And actually, it's, it's interesting, I think, for, for sometimes when we think, if we look up the Webster definition, they'll talk about, you know, the four walls and a roof. But rarely do we have a guess that that's how they describe home. It's usually around family, safety, where I, I feel I could be myself and that kind of thing. Uh, we'd like to learn a little bit about our guests. And uh, I was hoping you could talk just a little bit about your journey, your pathway to the work you're doing now. Uh, sure. So I'm a I'm a labor economist. So that means for the most part, I study um, things like wages. I stud I, I spent a lot of time studying inequality, um, some amount of thinking about how technology affects the labor market, um, and uh, then on how policies can can affect those kinds of outcomes. Uh, a couple of years ago, I guess in 2018, I got a call from the from the BC government. Um, saying that they wanted to set up this panel on basic income. And uh, I sort of jumped at the idea to try to look into what is, you know, one of the more interesting policy options that's on the table and being actively discussed. And uh, partly I jumped at the opportunity because the other people on the panel, Reese Kesselman and Lindsay Teds are people I have a lot of respect for. So it seemed like a great opportunity to get to work with them. Um, and, and I really actually kind of came to it with an open mind thinking, this is an interesting option. Let's see what we can find out about it. We were given quite a bit of resources and time, um, and produced a report that talks exactly about that. So I sort of came to it, not from a, as an expert in basic income in any way, but rather as a person with a deep interest in labor markets and labor market policy. Very, very cool. And, and so, you know, on this show, where we focus a lot of, on housing, poverty, homelessness, health, and those types of things, we often talk about uh, much of a, the situation we find ourselves in now is due to a failure of policy and bad policy. So great to have your expertise here. We want to talk about the book, uh, Basic Income and Adjust Society Policy Choices for Canada's Social Safety Net. And we want to talk about that today. And it's so interesting uh, to have you on and very relevant for me. I was in a meeting just yesterday where someone from the federal government, we were talking about the housing affordability crisis and how to work through it. And someone from the federal government, when I said, well, we can't really have a conversation about that if we don't talk about income. 
And he said, this is not an income issue. He said, you know, most of us, you know, more income is not going to make a, and in my head, I didn't get a chance. There's a big group to retort. I thought, we're not talking about most of us. We're talking about people with, people with a lack of income. And I think quite often Canadians hear the term basic income. They don't quite know what it means. It's been thrown forward. I think, you know, politicians, government has an interest, but it, it would be very expensive to do. And what does it really mean? And so I, I kind of set that up as let's talk about your book. If you could give us a little bit of background how it kind of came to fruition. You, you talked a little bit about that, maybe the process of putting it all together um, and, and uh, how it came to be. That would be fantastic. Sure. Um, I, in some ways, it came from a sort of an interesting point, which is in BC uh, a few years back now, there was an NDP government elected, but it was a minority government and needed the Greens to stay alive. And the Greens said, well, in return for our support, um, we want a basic income pilot run. But soon after that election was settled and they got together and talked, they decided they didn't really know, you know what a basic income even really meant and how could they run a pilot if they didn't know what the pilot was for. And so instead they decided to create a panel, which was us. Um, and I always, I always like to say, you know, one of the great benefits for us was it wasn't clear that the Greens and the NDP knew whether they would agree on on a basic income. And so therefore, from both of their perspectives, sort of politically, it was better to give us a lot of rope and a lot of time and have us not report back too soon. So they gave us uh, a couple of years, good resources, access to excellent data. And we used those resources to go out and commission reports from um, over 40 different reports, actually, that are, you can find on our on the website that we created afterwards, which is called bcbasicincomepanel.ca. Um, and all of those reports are up there. Part of our goal was whatever conclusion we're going to come to, we want it to be the case that the resources that we create can be there for other people to tap into um, as they discuss these issues, as you were saying. So a, a big part of the report was actually trying to characterize all the, you know, the problems with the existing system so that we could understand where a basic income would slot in. Um, in the end, we created a report that was 500 pages long. Um, presented it to all different parts of government because our argument was that you need to look beyond income, that <clears throat> exactly as you were saying before, all of these things intertwine, housing, health, um, the labor market in particular, uh, all intertwine. And so the, the scope of what we did is actually quite broad. Then we were a little worried that it would end up sort of just sitting on the government shelf. Um, We've had discussions with them since. I think it's actually having some in, impact inside the BC government, but uh, we were worried that it wouldn't in a longer term sense and that people outside BC uh, might be interested. And so we contacted the IRPP in Montreal and they were willing to help us turn it into a book to sort of take that 500 pages and craft it better in a more readable sense, I hope. Um, uh, with with particularly uh, the editing skills of France Saint-Hilaire, who works at IRPP, helping us take sort of four or five voices and turn it into something that's more like one. And that's that's what we've put out there now. And and I, I think it's important to note that part of the book is about um, not just a basic income, but setting out a framework for thinking about how to how to think about policy, how to how to think about big changes in policy that we hope will have sort of resonance beyond just the basic income issue. 
Yes, yes. And we actually want to get into that as well. What are the recommendations coming out? In doing all this work, 500 pages and doing all the work, were there any surprises, anything that going in you thought might be one way and then doing the work you thought, wow, I, I didn't know? Um, I, one of the ones, although I had some inkling, but it, it became more apparent as we got into it, um, was the impact on on work. So paid work. Let me Let me be clear, paid work. Uh, one of the big things that's often thrown up against basic income is a claim that a bunch of people will withdraw from paid work and the economy will be in big trouble. Um, and essentially, we put a bunch of work into trying to analyze that and came to the conclusion, which a lot of basic income proponents say, um, that, in fact, that's not a margin on which you would decide this, that, that essentially the impact, our predictions of the impact on work are not, that it would not be a huge impact. There would be some amount of withdrawal from paid labor, but a lot of that is related to, say, people with young children. And, and I think from a societal point of view, we would say that's probably a good, a good trade-off. Um, but even those are not huge changes. So, you know, the extent to which it really wasn't going to do that was, a, was probably a big point that came out. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project, or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Yeah, and, and that makes, makes total sense. Now, I think one of the pushbacks too, and you, you talk about this, uh, it's talked about it in the book, is that when people think of basic income, it's, it's that kind of broad strokes of one solution for all. And I know in the book, you say that, that can't be. I'm wondering if you could just kind of expand on that as well. When you looked at this, you can't just say, here's a basic income, and, and that works for everyone, right? There needs to be kind of a different approach. Yeah. And I, I think the right way to think about it is, um, you know, as, as you well know, I think as probably everybody listening knows, that the issues that we're talking about are very, very much multifaceted. Um, the example that I always like to think about is youth aging out of foster care, who are a, a particularly vulnerable group. Um, you know, when you go through and sort of document what happens with these young people, it's just heartbreaking, right? So in BC, there's about a thousand youth aging out of care every year, which makes up about 2%, a little less than 2% of, the, of, the, of their birth year. But they make up 15% of deaths between age 15 and 34. So it's just shocking. And I think this is a good example where you think, okay, one of the things that these young people need is income, no question. Like they're an income is needed, but you don't want to end there at all, right? Um, you know, a lot of what we're talking about, we're talking about people who've gone through trauma pretty much by definition. They don't, by and large, have an attachment to adults who can support them when they make the mistakes we all make when we're 19 years old. Um, and so our argument was a, a complete notion of, of how to help in this area has a basic income in, in a sense, like an income support for them in part, but it also has 
uh, a building of community. And by the way, about 60% of youth aging out of care in BC are indigenous. So this has a big element of reconciliation with it. So you want to think about how do we build and support community that they can keep coming back to and find support in. You also need to think about the labor market. How, how do we make sure that there are, you know, good jobs for them um, and for everybody, but, you know, as opposed to pushing them out into the labor market, you know, wishing them well with gig kind of jobs. Um, so, so we kind of argue that, you know, truly tackling an issue like this is very multifaceted. That if you focus too much just on the income one, there's a real risk that that sort of takes all the oxygen out of the room. That people say, oh, we've given them an income. We've, you know, we wash our hands of this. We're good to go now. Um, and, and that's one of our real concerns with the basic income. I, I should say the other thing that I think is important is, so previously, sorry, a lot of these references are BC relevant, but previously before, so, so the, the government has made a bunch of changes recently with youth aging out of care that are quite good. But the previous system was one where essentially at about age 18 or 19, you told the, you gave the youth a bunch of training in how to be independent. So essentially how to do budgeting, you know, how to shop for your food, things like that. And then at 19, you sort of wish them well and push them out into the world. And, and if they didn't have income, you gave them income assistance. And that's a very individualistic approach. It puts all of the weight on their shoulders. And part of our argument in, in, this, in this book is a basic income in general is a very individualistic approach. It, it, in principle, can hit a lot of targets because you're giving people money and telling them, go work on whatever target matters to you. But our argument is that a lot of the solutions are actually very much community-based. And so you want to think about policy options that build community. And that sort of, like I say, in the youth aging out of care, part of that was purposeful resources put into helping build communities in which the youth have a say and in which they find support. That's so interesting, uh, the youth piece too. We, uh, so I work at an organization called Blue Door uh, in the Northern GTA. We were working and are working on uh, with Away Home Canada and the Observatory on Homelessness. We wanted to do a actual income pilot for youth, like a, a cash transfer pilot with them. Uh, and I know similar work I think has been done in, or is being done right now in New York City. I think something happened in Chicago where they did a little work around that. And it was specifically around youth uh, leaving care. Uh, so, so yeah, it's so interesting uh, to hear that. I know also, I mean, you talk a lot about uh, B BC, but there's a lot of great work happening there. And it's, it's a case study for so many of us. I even know uh, we were chatting with for social change who did some great work around, it wasn't basic income, but it was uh, for social change did a small uh, project in Vancouver where they did gave people, I think $7,500 people who were not say high acuity. Um, and, and they noted the changes and it was incredible just for that little limited amount of money that, uh, how their lives changed. Right. So just showing that it is for so many, it, it is an income piece. And if you do with supports, they were already getting the supports, but with the addition of that income, it was just such a change. Now you made some recommendations and some policy you taught you, you could have, uh, referred to them early on, um, you're proposing setting some policy reforms. I'm wondering if you could touch on some of those that have come out of the book. Sure. Um, I think there, there's a part of what we do in the book is try to develop and what we did in the report was develop a set of principles for thinking about evaluating justice uh, based um, policy. And 
helping guide exactly the kind of policy options that we put on the table. And a big point of what we what we talked about was that you want to root these decisions in in some notion of justice. We didn't want to impose one notion of justice. And so we we essentially argue that most theory, most ideas of justice um, are are based in an idea that people should get an equal basis of respect, um, that that we build a society of equal respect. That then, in our mind, leads to a set of principles, and those principles then lead to the recommendations. Sorry, this is sort of roundabout. Um, the, the principles include one, one key one is adequacy, and that comes back to what you're talking about in the sort of northern GTA with the youth, that the, the payments that are out there right now are not adequate. Um, a really good example of that is people living with disability you know, we have these elaborate systems to decide whether a person has a long-term disability. And then once they're given that categorization, they're told, well, the income that we're going to give you for the rest of your life is going to be below the poverty line. And that sort of makes no sense to us. So, you know, one part of it, and one big part of our recommendations was getting, getting numbers up. But if you, even if you don't change the system that you, that you get the benefits to livable levels, um, a second is, as I said, a real emphasis on respect and that a lot of people find their notions of respect in work of various kinds, not necessarily paid work. And so then uh, we put a lot of emphasis on developing a sort of work assist program that would be voluntary. So, for example, when we talked and we did a bunch of consultations with different groups, but when we talked with people from the community of people living with disabilities, there are a lot of emphasis a lot of times came back to them. The system is set up to punish me for doing any kind of work. I can't even volunteer without feeling like I'm going to lose my benefits. Um, the interesting thing was we are at the same time talking to the people in the government and they said, oh, no, no, that's not true. They, that's, we don't have rules like that. But no question the people living with disability felt that that was the case. And so part of our recommendations is to set up a system that really integrates options for work and support for work and allowing people um, to move on and off benefits easily so that they can take up work options um, in order to sort of gain that sort of feeling of self-efficacy -effic as well as the income stuff, but probably more importantly, the self-efficacy part. Um, the other, one of the other big areas for us, as I've sort of alluded to a few times, is labor market. Um, there's a lot of concern about, about precarious work, about um, gig work, I mean, really, our analysis says the amount of gig work is not huge. It really is mostly Uber, honestly, strangely enough, and Uber food and things like that. But what really is big and concerning is uh, what's sometimes called fissured work. That is those situations that um, where somebody, you know, say, say like a well, a really good example was long term care homes that we saw during COVID, during the first part of COVID, right, which was that a bunch of the people working as caregivers in those homes didn't work for the homes. They worked for some agency that farmed them out. Um, and that has real uh, implications for wage levels. It has real implications for whether the regulations that really should apply to them actually do apply to them. Um, and so a bunch, of our a bunch of our recommendations were around, let's take a, a, a clear-headed and conscious uh, approach to regulating labor markets making sure that we know who's an employee under the law and having a real conversation with employers and employees to try to find the kinds of work arrangements that we want that are respectful. Um, that also recognize employers need to 
you know, make decisions at work. Like they need to be able to tell an employee what to do. It can't all be one way, but we feel like the balance was off. And so a, a bunch of our recommendations were related to that. Those, those are some of the biggest ones. We also, some of the other things that we've sort of seen come up um, in a lot of the income assistance systems in Canada, there are, uh, there are essentially in-kind benefits that is say like dental uh, benefits, for example, that people get while they're on benefit, but when they leave benefit, they either lose those immediately or sort of in a gradual way. And so we argued for a universal dental, dental program, which of course is happening at the national level. I don't think they heard what we said at all. I don't think we could even vaguely claim credit for that, but it was something the BC government was very interested in. Um, and so essentially creating a set of those kinds of supports that again, make it easier to move on and off the income support when it's needed um, but also make sure that we're, we're supporting people at a broader level. And, and let me say the other two things running throughout this are these sort of two big principles. One is build community, and that I referred to already. We have a number of places where that comes up in very explicitly in our recommendations. The second is process. If you put a lot of emphasis on respect, that means you need to build a policy prospect, sorry, process that has real respect built into it. Um, and the example that we had in front of us for this was the national housing strategy at the federal level, where you create an ombudsperson and a, a committee that is, or a council that provides recommendations, writes reports in the area, and those reports are by mandate read out in parliament so that everybody hears them so that the people who are affected feel they have a voice. And so the issue is to build a policy process that doesn't sort of from on high design a policy and walk away from it, um, or even in that process, consult with the people most affected, you know, often somewhat briefly, and then put it in place and then hope it runs, but rather a process where the policy is continually reevaluated. There's a place for real voice for the people who are affected. A policy process, honestly, that's sort of much messier than what, is, than, than what we see now. And, and partly because we believe in that, in the book, we don't say, oh, here's a complete package. Here's the set of policies you need to do. But rather we say, here's some suggestions. And then by our notion, what, what we would hope would happen is you set out with those suggestions and you get a lot of input from the people most affected and then proceed down the path where that leads uh, rather than, you know, saying, here's a, here's a sort of complete policy package. Well, amazing. Yeah. And great, great to have that input. So you've done all this work. The, the book is launched. What has the response been from the public, from government and others? Well, let's see from, it, it's been varied, honestly. So from government, um, it was quite good. We went around and our recommendations touched on about six ministries. We went and talked to the minister in each one of those areas uh, laying out our thoughts of how to proceed. And for some of those ministries, we've been in touch since, and and they've, you know, we've gotten feedback from them. Um, from there's, then in the public, I think in some sense, you have to you sort of, in my mind, at least you divide the world into two parts. One is um, people who really, really actively and passionately believe in a basic income. And I respect that passion. We set out being very interested in this policy option we still believe, you know, income is a key part of what has to be done. We just don't believe everything should be centered on a basic income. But the responses we got from uh, parts of the basic income community were sort of interesting, uh, might be the good way to put it. So um, 
we ended up with uh, what I think of, what I came to think of as the uh, Wizard of Oz options. We were either um, the Tin Man had no heart and didn't understand, you know, what really, you know, we were just heartless, um, didn't understand that this was a crisis in many regards, which it is. Um, or the scarecrow, we had no brain and didn't understand. We couldn't actually analyze what was in front of us. Or we were the cowardly lion, which meant that we really actually did believe everything. We understood what happened, but we were too uh, cowardly to actually stand up and say the thing that ought to be said. Um, we sort of viewed ourselves as Dorothy. We were sort of setting off on the path and trying to find out which way it went. But um, I can tell you that five minutes after we released the report, and um, remember I told you this is a 500 page report, Less than five minutes afterwards, I got an email from somebody, which is, the subject line was, in all caps was, you are brain dead. Um, and so <laughs> that, that was one part of the response. Um, it's a fast reader. A, yeah, he's a very fast reader. Exactly. Yeah, I'm not even sure you could read the abstract that fast. But anyway, so um, on the other side, there's people who have a view that sort of is more like where we landed and they are, you know, they're quite supportive. And then... Our hope is now we're sort of interested in what's going to happen with the book. And, and again, like I said, we, we view the book much like the website as trying to put resources and research out there as a basis for discussion. And, and my hope is that people who don't know which side they're on, to some degree, come to this book, you know, learn things and then think about how to proceed. And let me also say, I also hope we've tried to write the book as a not not as a which side is your on sort of thing as a like, obviously, it's either all basic income or not at all basic income. But rather, we're all searching for the same goal here. We're trying to create a more just society. Here's some ideas about how to proceed. And perhaps not loading everything onto one policy tool is kind of our suggestion. But we completely respect, you know, the viewpoint of the people who think that is the way to go. Well, I think this is the book's very solution based, right? I mean, I think quite often we get government at the table and tell them everything that's wrong, but we don't really bring them tangible solutions, right? They're saying, hey, you know, listen, we don't have all the answers because we were voted in. We're looking to the experts. And I think there's some some great input here and some great paths forward. Um, you know, we, we often on, on this show talk about Think and Peace. We've had uh, Neil Hetherington, a friend of mine, and, and he runs Daily Bread. And he talked about, listen, you know, the answer is not more food banks. It's uh, we have an income problem. If people can afford their housing, then they can afford food to buy their own food. And in fact, during the pandemic, food bank usage was at its lowest because people had an income where they could afford food. Right. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah, income definitely plays a part. I mean, it, it is more complex than that. And I think you've done a great job, uh, you and the team of just showing that and demonstrating that and, and giving some suggestions on how we can keep moving this discussion forward is fantastic. Um, if people want to buy the book, take a look, find out more about the work you're doing, where can they go? Where can they get, get the book? Uh, the, the book is put out by McGill Queens Press. So that would be the place you could go. I think you can get it on Amazon. People have different opinions on whether they think Amazon is a good place to go for anything. Um, so I'm a little hesitant to push the Amazon angle, but McGill Queens Press um, is the place that you would go to find it. Very cool. Thank you so much for your work on this. Thanks for uh, educating myself uh, and our listeners. I think the basic income discussion or income discussion uh, is not going to go away anytime soon. We can't let it go away. We know income plays a huge part, that they're inadequate. In Ontario, um, 
social assistance is $720 a month. And that is actually lower than it was in 1995 when there was a 21% uh, cut to it and it's never rebounded. So you can imagine when you're, you're, if you're looking at 30% of your income that should go towards housing is the benchmark right now in the GTA. And I'm sure the same or similar in Vancouver uh, in most parts of BC, it's $100,000 a year of household income. That one needs uh, not 8,000. <laughs> you're getting yeah. social assistance. So the gap is huge. Um, we need, we, you know, we need solutions moving forward. And this, I think, contributes to that conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciated the, the opportunity and I enjoyed the discussion. Amazing. I hope everyone goes out, buy the book, share the book, um, you know, and, and let's keep the discussion going forward. David, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.